Okay, so welcome back. Week two. We're going to get rolling pretty much straight into it after we talk about a couple administrative things. Uh, we got a lot to talk about as far as respiratory disorders go today. Uh, so, uh, one quick note. Um, online quiz. So your first online quiz will be available by the time class is done today. Uh, and then it's due uh, just about a week. So, so basically end of the day on Monday the 20th. So the day before your next class. Okay, so just quick uh, little show you how it works here. If you go into your class on the left, assignments. This won't show up just yet, uh, but it'll be right here. Just click on it. Uh, just be aware that once you start, then you have to finish. So you get one shot at it, 60 minutes, um, and I believe it is 15 questions. Sounds about right. 15 questions, I believe. So it shouldn't be too bad. Um, there will this no, won't necessarily always be the case, but uh, some sometimes you'll have to have gone ahead in the notes a little bit. But for this one, as the first one, uh, you will have covered everything, all the material for all the questions that you'll be asked about on this quiz by the end of today's selection. Okay. That being said, probably a good idea to um, to review your notes before you start the quiz. Um, 50, an hour is, is should be lots of time to do 15 questions, but just in case you don't want to be going in blind and and not know what you're coming up against, so review that stuff before. But again, it's open book. You'll have all the notes uh, in front of you, so you should be just fine. There should be a combination of multiple choice, true, false, and fill in the blank questions for the most part on this quiz, which is pretty typical for all of your online quizzes. Um, and we're going to do a little um, brief uh, kind of testing class today, a, a Kahoot quiz. It's not worth anything just to kind of test your knowledge. Uh, we will typically do that at the beginning of class, but I didn't quite get as far as I'd like into the notes last week. So we'll cover pneumonia first and then we'll do our, our first Kahoot. So that should be a pretty good gauge for you. Uh, if, you're, if you do okay on the Kahoot, then you're in pretty good shape uh, as far as understanding the concepts so far. I know it's just week two, not everyone's not into studying yet, I, I get that, but just make sure that you, uh, make sure that you keep up. All right, let's do this. So, <coughs> if you remember, what we were doing was we're in the middle of the infections section of, of, this, uh, of this unit, right? So uh, we're going to do infections, finish that up, and then we're going to do obstructive disorders and restrictive disorders uh, kind of in that order. Um, so we were working our way down from the upper respiratory tract into the lower respiratory tract, and I believe we covered one lower respiratory tract infection, which was uh, bronchiolitis. Now we're going to talk about a handful of lower respiratory tract infections. I'm certain that you've heard of pneumonia, but there are a lot of different kinds of pneumonia, and we're going to learn about some of the differences. So again, being uh, in the <coughs> infection section in particular, <coughs> I want you to pay close attention to uh, involved anatomy. So again, these are pneumonia by definition is a lower respiratory tract infection. However, one of the ways we're going to subclassify some of the different types of pneumonia is the specific anatomy that's involved. And you'll see what I mean really shortly. <coughs> as, and then as far as infections go, make sure that when you're studying and categorizing the stuff in your brain, uh, that you are remembering the causative agent. So we're going to see primarily bacterial and viral infections. There's uh, one fungal infection we'll cover um, and a couple that are a little bit 
they're bacterial-esque. All right, you'll see what I mean. Um, so uh, let's talk about the, uh, um, how you can classify pneumonia. So classify based on causative agent, we'll see that. You can classify based on what part of the lung, we'll see that. Um, we'll see kind of some references to this other stuff too. <coughs> um, certain forms of pneumonia can be classified epidemiologically, so statistically, basically populations. So where do you tend to find outbreaks of these particular kinds of infections? And when we get into things like um, Legionnaire's disease, uh, well, tuberculosis is different, but at least for pneumonia, Legionnaire's disease uh, is one of those ones where it tends to be what's called a nosocomial <coughs> infection. And that word means acquired in a healthcare facility, so often a hospital or a nursing home or places like that, which makes sense, right? They're reservoirs. They're reservoirs for, um, for both uh, disease, because sick people go there, and for people that are immunocompromised, right? So they're either elderly or they are otherwise ill or stressed or, you know, th their immune system is maybe not up to, up to snuff. So those things should make sense. <coughs> so let's talk about some of the basics. Um, I'll come back to this table in a bit. Again, this is an excellent summary of the three major types of pneumonia that we're going to learn about today. Uh, they are uh, lobar pneumonia, bronchopneumonia, and primary atypical pneumonia, which is also called interstitial pneumonia. So I'll come back to this. Let's go through each of them uh, first. And we're going to start by classifying them anatomically. So again, these are all pneumonias, so of course they're all lung infections, lower respiratory tract. But the major difference, there are significant differences between those three primary types. So the first one would be uh, bronchopneumonia. So bronchopneumonia is the one that's showed in, shown in uh, the kind of the green dots here. Um, it's showing you that it's diffuse. So bronchopneumonia is a bacterial infection. It's not necessarily one specific species of bacteria. It could be a handful of different species. Um, you'd have to culture to find the exact one. But the, the, the nature of bronchopneumonia is it's diffuse, so it spreads out. So it can essentially, it can affect um, widespread areas of one lung, it can spread to both lungs, it's kind of all over the place, okay? And that's in contrast to our second one, which is called lobar pneumonia. And as the name implies, lobe, uh, once lobar pneumonia takes hold in a lobe, or multiple lobes, it tends to occupy the entirety of the lobe. So uh, with any infection, specifically bacterial infections, you're going to get exudates, right, fluid formation. And we know some of the differences between the exudate with viral infections and bacterial infections already, right? What is it, what, in any viral infection, what does the exudate look like? The fluid that's formed. Uh, not in a viral infection. In a viral infection, it's more serous, right, so watery. In a bacterial infection, you tend to have more purulent exudates, so pus. And so, so it's a little more opaque, it's a little thicker, that kind of stuff. So you're going to see some of that in bronchopneumonia. Um, but in lobar pneumonia, in particular, there is this exudate that's formed that's also got a lot, of what's, uh, a lot of fibrin in it, which is a protein. And what ends up happening is this process called consolidation. So basically, this, this uh, exudate's formed and it fills up the air spaces within the lung and it creates uh, what's essentially a consolidated gelatinous mass. So basically it occupies the entirety of the lobe. Make sense? So it's not just fluid floating around, it's, it's actually occupying the entire lobe. So for example, uh, you guys, um, so differences clinically, um, uh, there are others in, in the, the fever and the, the, the sputum and that, we'll talk about those things. 
but you guys have done clinical assessment, like um, uh, auscultation and, and, and percussion of the lungs, those kinds of things? Okay, so if you're to auscultate <coughs> uh, lungs in a bronchopneumonia, what do you expect you would hear? <coughs> Sorry? Potentially, yeah, some wheezing and something else. Crackles, rails, right? But so there's, there's secretion, okay? And it's mixed with air and it bubbles. If you were to, <coughs> os uh, sorry, if you were to percuss a lung with bronchopneumonia, it would probably sound like a lung, right? It would, it would sound hollowish, right? There's, there's some resonance to it. With lobar pneumonia, this can be different. When lobar pneumonia is developing, there will be rails, crackles, right? But then as it consolidates, what would you expect to hear on auscultation? Nothing. What's required to hear breath sounds? Air. Movement of airflow, air, right? So if you have consolidation of the entirety of the air spaces, there's no airflow, there's no air, there's no sounds, there's no crackles, there's nothing left. It's nothing. Okay. If you were to percuss that lobe that's affected, what would you expect to feel? Dull. Dull. Dull exactly, like that thud that you're that you're taught to look for, as opposed to like the hollow residence of a normal empty airspace. Good. Can you just speak You are. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so. Uh, so those, those are the two, uh, two of the, of, the, of the differences anatomically between those first two. The third one, <coughs> um, primary atypical pneumonia, is also called interstitial pneumonia. So what is the interstitium or interstitial space? Perfect. So it's the space in between cells. And if you remember back to patho 1, you would have talked about um, things, you know, when there's an inflammatory response, there's... You know, there's, uh, there's uh, edema, and edema will, will essentially uh, accumulate in the interstitial space. And, of course, it can spill over into whatever else is next to it, uh, but in the, interst the interstitial space is where it accumulates, right? If you uh, use the example, if, if you rolled your ankle, right, so sprained a ligament, and your, your ankle blows up like a grapefruit, right? There's swelling in there. Where, if you were to look in closely microscopically where that fluid actually is, the, it's predominantly in the interstitial space. It's occupying space there. This is why we have a lymphatic system, right? Is to drain and filter and clean that interstitial fluid, the excess, and deliver it back to the cardiovascular system. Okay? So in here, <laughs> we have an interstitial space, of course. When I was drawing the stuff on the board last week, I was drawing alveolar air spaces, and then the, I was trying to describe the tissue in between it, right? So there's elastic tissue, and there's cells, and there's blood vessels. So that's the interstitial space in between those, those cells. So uh, in this case, what we have is, uh, is uh, an infection in the interstitium. And so it, it creates some differences in, in how that pneumonia presents. Because in interstitial pneumonia, or primary atypical pneumonia, the person will have a cough, but it will pretty often be non-productive, like a hacking non-productive cough. What do I mean when I say productive or non-productive? Yeah, or something actually comes up. So you're actually producing phlegm mucus. So uh, it, you will often be more non-productive cough in uh, interstitial pneumonia. This is also sometimes called walking pneumonia. Okay? The signs are fairly mild compared to a lot of uh, uh, some other types of pneumonia. 
that being said, uh, it can often last a long, long time. It's not unheard of for people to have this kind of infection for months sometimes. Okay. Now, um, the first two, your bronchopneumonia and your lobar pneumonia, are, um, are caused by bacteria. We're going to talk the more specifics in a second. Um, interstitial pneumonia, it has two primary causes. One is a mycoplasma, and that's a, um, it, it's a bacteria-like organism. Um, and the other is virus, and in particular, uh, commonly the influenza virus. So influenza being normally an upper respiratory tract infection can descend down into the lungs and cause an interstitial pneumonia. Okay? So let's talk about a little more detail of each. Uh, again, starting here with uh, lobar. So as I mentioned, lobar pneumonia is bacterial. In this particular pneumonia, we nine times out of ten, we do know the specific organism that causes it, one species of bacteria. It's called strep pneumo. No, streptococcus pneumonia, so named because it ca frequently causes pneumonia. So, um, as I mentioned, it can be uh, it can be in multiple lobes of the lungs, but once it occupies a lobe, it occupies the entirety of the lobe, which gives us with the inflammation and the uh, exudate that's that's formed that consolidated mass that I mentioned earlier. Um, there is another uh, um, somewhat unique, or at least uh, um, uh, special sign about uh, lobar pneumonia is that um, the sputum is rusty in color. We, kinda, we made a brief mention of that last week when we were looking at what's color, the appearance of the sputum. Uh, in this case, it looks like a, a dark brownish, reddish rust color. That's pretty uh, indicative of lobar pneumonia in particular. Okay? Um, the, this infection can spread. It can spread, again, from, from one region to another. Uh, and it can also spread as it occupies an entire lobe kind of from inside out all the way out to the periphery of, of whatever lobe it is, what is up against the outside of a, a lobe of the lung? What's the next tissue? The pleura, right? So particularly the visceral pleura, and then the pleural cavity, and then the parietal pleura. So uh, you can get spreading infection, or at least, uh, uh, at least um, exudate, from the lobe into the pleural cavity. Okay? And so uh, when pus moves into the pleural cavity, we call that empyema. Okay? So when, uh, if you start involving the pleura, if there's now pus or bacteria outright uh, it's infiltrated the pleura, what additional sign do you expect, uh, a sign or symptom do you expect that, that patient to now experience? Um, probably going to be short of breath before that. Something else, something that's specific to the pleura. Pain. pain, exactly, right? So pain and pain constantly or pain intermittently or we talked about last week cyclic pain, right? Cycling, usually as you breathe and most often as you inhale and you pull on the pleura, it hurts. So the pain will kind of hurt more when they're taking deep breaths. Okay, now lobar pneumonia, um, it's a kind of bacterial infection that tends to have a, a, a more sudden onset and a higher fever that, as compared to some of the other types like uh, bronchopneumonia. Uh, so high fever, systemic stuff like chills, fatigue, malaise. Uh, if you were to pull blood, you would see leukocytosis, of course. What does that mean? Yep, elevated white blood cells. That indicates uh, usually infection, um, but definitely inflammation. Uh, short of breath, and again, that's going to vary depending on how much of the lung tissue is involved, but they're certainly going to be short of breath in some capacity. 
when you are short of breath, the body's automatic response is typically increased respiratory rate, so tachypnea, increased heart rate, tachycardia. It's trying to compensate uh, for, your, uh, for your difficulty in, in, uh, in exchanging gas. Okay? Pain in the pleura, so cycling uh, pain on, on breathing if it's involved. Uh, rails, so crackles in the early stages, followed by absence of breath sounds once that lobe has been consolidated. And as I mentioned, that characteristic rusty sputum, that's pretty indicative of a lobar pneumonia. Okay? There can also be some cognitive stuff going on, confusion, disorientation. That's relating to the fact that it tends to uh, manifest with a high fever. Okay? So there's some unique parts to this, right? The consolidation, the, uh, the rusty sputum, and the fact that there is one specific <coughs> organism that causes this. You may, wink, wink, want to remember that particular organism. Okay, next is bronchopneumonia. So again, bronchopneumonia is caused by bacterial infection. But in this case, it could be any number of species of bacteria. So we don't know necessarily based on a diagnosis of bronchopneumonia uh, until you do a, a culture uh, test of the, of the sputum. Okay, um, being that it's a bacterial infection, there's of course gonna be exudates. Uh, it's going to be probably purulent exudate, which means pus, so it means that the sputum uh, samples are going to be maybe your, your opaque, yellowy, greeny-ish kind of uh, color to it. Um, it. There will be a fever, although it's going to be a little more moderate than the lobar pneumonia, not as quite uh, high of a fever. There's no consolidation uh, of the tissue in bronchopneumonia, which means that you're going to continue to hear rails, crackles uh, throughout the course of the infection if you're auscultate. Um, of course, same thing as the lobar pneumonia, being a bacterial infection, pretty clear cut the treatment, right? Antibiotics. And that's it. Pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip Legionnaire's disease for the time being. I will come back to that in a sec. Our third one on that list of the three primary types of pneumonia is primary atypical, also called interstitial, also called walking pneumonia. Okay? So the two major causes of primary atypical pneumonia are a mycoplasma, mycoplasma pneumonia, or a virus. And when it's a virus, which is common, specifically influenza is the most common cause. Okay? So that's going to mean, um, if it's a viral infection with pneumonia, it's going to be fairly self-limiting. So for the most part, it's going to be supportive care. If it's a mycoplasma, there's going to be more involved uh, treatment because it's a bacteria. Um, but as I mentioned, these things can tend to last. They can be tricky to diagnose sometimes, um, and they can last quite a while. This is one ones that can last months sometimes. Uh, your question. Uh, the, the, I'm sure there is something about the virus that makes it so, but uh, I'm not exactly sure what. Okay. Uh, keep in mind, too, by the way, that, um, that uh, as much as influenza can travel from the upper respiratory tract to the lower respiratory tract and creates an interstitial pneumonia, can influenza also create a bronchopneumonia? It can, right? Indirectly. Remember we talked last week how 
um, a bacterial infection can follow in the wake of a viral infection. So if, if the virus travels down towards the lung tissue and causes some inflammatory damage, it makes that environment uh, easier for bacteria to, to take hold. So it could be the, the precursor to a bacterial pneumonia. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, just to clarify, so this one can be viral and bacterial. Correct. Okay. So if we hop back to uh, this slide right here, this is a good summary of the major three that we just learned. Uh, remember that there's going to be some similarities and some differences between them. Um, two of them are going to have uh, productive cough. Which two? Low bar and bronco. Good. Two of them are going to have, uh, sorry, um, let's see, one of them is going to have a high fever. Low bar. Um, remember the anatomical differences, this patchy kind of spread out with bronchopneumonia, the consolidated or sorry, um, uh, located in an entire lobe in low bar, interstitial is in the interstitial space. Uh, what else? More acute onset with low bar versus the, uh, the other two which are going to be a little bit more insidious. And then some of the unique stuff, um, the rusty sputum uh, with low bar pneumonia. Uh, the more purulent sputum with uh, bronchopneumonia and neither with the interstitial. All right. Questions now? Okay. <coughs> I skipped this one right here, Legionnaires. Because um, Legionnaires disease, it certainly uh, can cause a pneumonia, but it's more an atypical kind of pneumonia. So. Legionnaire's disease is caused by an organism called Legionella. Um, there are actually uh, several uh, species of Legionella that can cause this. Um, it's, uh, Legionella is a bacteria technically, but it's got some different properties than a lot of other bacterial species. So uh, it's harder to identify in a culture uh, and it makes it somewhat more difficult to treat. Um, but that, you know, regardless, um, it is a bacterial infection, so it can be treated. Uh, but it does tend to, when there is a Legionella infection in the lungs, it t tends to be more severe than your run-of-the-mill bacterial uh, pneumonia. Okay, um, This one is also um, often uh, classified epidemiologically in the sense that we find it in particular populations, in this case um, predominantly, well not necessarily predominantly, but commonly nosocomial. So it's found in healthcare settings. So Legionella thrives in warm, moist environments, and that includes things like ventilation systems, right? And again, remember, in say a hospital setting, you have, you know, you have the ventilation system that might have Legionella. Again, hospital or setting like that being a reservoir for for various microbes and disease, and you have patients at risk, right? You have vulnerable patients who are. Um, you know, young and old and immunocompromised and comorbid and have other stuff going on, so they're more at risk um, than somebody else for, for picking that up. Okay? Uh, not much else to, to say about that. Just be aware of that it's a bacteria and it can cause uh, significant pneumonia. Okay? All right. Where are we? Okay, let's talk about one more infection and then we'll do our, uh, our Kahoot, okay? So next is SARS. SARS, you've probably heard of. It stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. 
Um, it is, uh, so SARS is caused by a virus, one specific virus. It's in the family of what's, what are called coronaviruses, so it's a kind of a, a round-ish virus. Um, and you probably know SARS because there was uh, an outbreak in locally in the Toronto area in 2003. Uh, so it's something that, that sh showed up as um, basically kind of an atypical outbreak of, uh, of significant uh, atypical pneumonia uh, that, uh, that was affecting people not, that are not just uh, your vulnerable populations like the young and the old, but even healthy middle-aged people. And it was pretty aggressive and it spread rapidly and it was, um, you know, you know uh, potentially fatal because it was so aggressive and, cause, and can cause uh, respiratory failure. So. Um, in that particular case, um, you know, the epidemiological implications was it came from East Asia uh, or China, flight from Hong Kong, I believe, that came into Toronto, uh, and then there were some outbreaks locally, so in China and Hong Kong and a couple other countries, but, but uh, nowhere else other than those countries as significantly as, uh, as Toronto, and it's because somebody who was ill came, came in on that flight, and then it spread from there. Um, so the, the respiratory stuff, I mean, significant, um, uh, significant uh, um, swelling that, uh, that's caused by the, the damage to the, uh, to the interstitium of the lungs, um, the, it, it, it progressed pretty rapidly uh, and it's, it, was quite, um, it was quite easy to spread, um, spread by respiratory droplets, so coughing, sneezing, spitting, that kind of stuff, as you would expect with most respiratory infections. Um, you know, close contact these people had on a on an airplane makes a lot of sense of how it got spread pretty rapidly. Um, the uh, skip ahead because this one this virus. Although we talked last week about how a lot of viral infections in general are watch and waits, right? Supportive care. This one isn't one of those because it was so aggressive, so virulent, um, and caused such significant respiratory impairment. Um, had a, a significant uh, fatality rate overall compared to a lot of other viral infections. So this is one of those ones that you do treat aggressively. You treat with antivirals, you treat with glucocorticoids to manage the inflammation. Uh, a lot of patients would have required um, mechani mechanical ventilation or some other kind of supportive respiratory care in addition to isolation because of how rapidly this spreads. These are the kinds of uh, cases where you take those extra measures uh, to isolate that patient from, uh, from spreading it uh, to anybody else. Okay? And again, on a side note, this is, this, um, a lot of things kind of came in the wake of, of, of this the SARS outbreak in 03, both good and bad. Um, you know, uh, in Toronto, where, you know, where our, kind of the hub of our, of our medical research community, um, you know, they did a great job of ultimately identifying the virus because prior to that, the virus wasn't specifically known, and so that was obviously a good thing. Um, it did kind of shed some light on some inadequacies in the public health response, um, and so that, that was kind of a problem at the time. And that should also um, be, uh, be uh, something to keep in the back of your mind too when, whenever it's suggested to cut money out of uh, public health these kinds of, the response to these kinds of things are where it's going to end up hurting people if there is an outbreak of something, okay? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It won't get political. Um, the, what else? 
so again, epidemiologically, it's, you, you've, um, th does SARS still exist? Yes, of course it does, right? Um, but it's endemic to certain regions. It pops up from time to time, usually places in Asia. Um, but it's, 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 it's one of those ones that's uh, it's on the um, reportable disease list. So if it shows up, you have to report it immediately to public health because it does tend to spread fairly uh, rapidly. Uh, what else? Uh, no, that's, that's pretty much it. Okay, progresses rapidly, fever. There can actually be um, you know, a significant whole body effects, so uh, headache and chills and muscle aches, uh, even some GI stuff like vomiting or diarrhea, which is not terribly <coughs> typical of a lot of respiratory disorders, uh, but this one is significant. Okay, questions? All right, so let's take a um, All right then. So let's talk about our next infection, which is a, a bigger topic, right? Tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is uh, one, of those one, one of those infections that has one specific species, uh, uh, organism, one specific causative agent that causes it. In this case, it's what's called a mycobacterium, mycobacterium tuberculosis. So um, we're going to learn what a tubercle is and why it's called tuberculosis shortly. <coughs> but a, a mycobacterium implies that it is a bacteria. Um, so ultimately, the treatment for this is antibiotics. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that, but it is a bacteria. Um, but it's a little bit of an abnormal bacteria. Myco means um, fungus-like. So it's got some properties that are, are not typical of a lot of other bacteria, which gives it some unique properties. Okay. Now, <coughs> tuberculosis um, is one of those ones that, uh, uh, that you hear about, and you guys, oh, okay. I assume you've all had your skin test done, right? You want to test it for it. How common is tuberculosis in, you know, in, in, in this population, in North America? Not terribly common, okay? Um, it, it shows up, right, but it's not terribly <coughs> common. Um, does anybody have any ballpark idea of the global prevalence of infection of tuberculosis? Like if you had to estimate how many, what percentage of the entire world population of whatever billion people we have now uh, has tuberculosis infection? Ten? It's higher than that. So actually about 25. So that's significant, right? But there is a real skew in the epidemiology there, right? So again, it's not very common here, but it is really common in certain places in the world. And this speaks to some of the complications with treating it and who gets it and, and how it's spread. Um, so the, the, um, the largest number of cases are in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, especially the developing countries, uh, where it's uh, high-density populations, places that have inadequate access to proper health care. Okay? And so this becomes really prevalent. Um, it's actually, <laughs> TB is con it's consistently one of the two uh, highest uh, causes of death due to uh, infectious disease worldwide every year, about a million and a half people. Uh, what's the other one? Take a guess. What other infectious disease kills a ton of people worldwide? HIV. Right? So HIV and tuberculosis. Anyway, so um, who gets this? Right? Um, I, I was kind of referring to uh, high density populations, poor access to healthcare, and those things matter. Ultimately, uh, some of the common things we see are people that live 
uh, in crowded conditions. So um, if and when this stuff does pop up in more developed nations, it tends to be in places like homeless shelters or prisons or um, you know, refugee camps, if those are you know, places like that exist. Places where people are crowded together. <laughs> um, and the other part, which is going to become relevant, is the rest of this list, basically, right? Malnutrition, alcoholism, HIV infection, and outright immunodeficiency. The theme there is immunodeficiency, okay? So a compromised immune system. <clears throat> and this speaks to how this disease develops because uh, the, <clears throat> the majority of people that acquire TB, their immune system is strong enough that it can essentially, the person will not be um, symptomatic. And I'll explain what that means. But <clears throat> what can happen is um, somebody with a uh, TB infection, their immune system can keep it in check for a while, and then it can become reactivated. So it can stay in you a long, long time. And that's why we do things like screening for tuberculosis with skin tests and, and chest x-rays. And we'll, we'll get to all that. Okay. So <clears throat> let's talk about how kind of the normal course of how this might go. So it's a respiratory infection. <clears throat> it's spread by respiratory droplets, so coughing. Uh, and sneezing and uh, spitting and things like that, okay? So kind of aerosol. Um, <coughs> if uh, um, some, one of the, one of the uh, special <coughs> things about TB is unlike some other uh, bacteria, say you had a bacteria in a bronchial pneumonia and you cough up sputum and spit it out or whatever, over the course of a you know, reasonably short amount of time, it'll die, right, the bacteria. Uh, tuberculosis can live outside the body for a while, days to even weeks sometimes. Um, so you can kill it, but you have to essentially do it intentionally. So you have to you know, expose it to ultraviolet light or high heat or alcohol or bleach or uh, one of those things that we use to clean stuff. And that's you know, part of sterilizing equipment and making sure that you know, uh, uh, reservoirs like hospitals get cleaned and, uh, properly and those kinds of things because this can live outside the body. Now. Let's say you, somebody is exposed to it, right? So they, they inhale some respiratory droplets that have the, the live um, mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, what happens is this, okay? So the bacteria get into the lungs. What should happen when your body is exposed to a, a foreign, um, a, a foreign uh, invader like this is it initiates an inflammatory and immune response, right? It says, this doesn't belong here. Let's kill it. Okay, so um, right off the bat, if the person's immune response is inadequate, so if, it's n if the immune system is not strong, if they are otherwise stressed or malnourished or immunocompromised or you know, pick, you know, pick whatever reason it is that their immune system is not up to par, that person can in short notice or short order have an acute tuberculosis infection where the bacteria spreads, it causes inflammation and damage and necrosis to local lung tissue, and it is contagious. So they have an active infection that can be spread when they cough, okay? However, in, uh, the, in uh, um, a large number of cases, if that person, the recipient, if their immune system is adequate, okay, their response is adequate, so their immune system is functioning well, what happens is you initiate the immune response, the immune system does what it's supposed to do, and it tries to kill all this bacteria, okay? Now, uh, tuberculosis is hard to kill, remember. So um, if, uh, if the immune system is unable to eradicate all the bacteria, what its next best option is, is to wall it off, 
and contain it. So it creates these uh, scar tissue-y pockets called granulomas, okay? So it's granular scar tissue, where basically you're walling off live tuberculosis mycobacteria inside the pockets, okay? So by doing that, you're, uh, you're preventing exposure from any other living tissue. But what it doesn't do is kill the bacteria inside that, uh, that tubercle. The tubercle is the granulation scar tissue. Yeah, that's why it's called tuberculosis. So what you have there is, if, if, even if the immune system is you know, responding adequately, is you have someone who is not symptomatic, but they do have live bacteria inside these tubercles, inside the pockets, inside the lung. So the risk is later on, 10% of those cases-ish, will end up being reactivated. And the reactivation usually occurs when that person's immune system becomes compromised. So no longer they can they keep it there locked down, and it, the uh, tubercles can cavitate, which means they break open, and the, the bacteria now spreads, and it's now an active live infection again that is contagious. Does that so, make sense? So they're not contagious in that other it, area. Right. If that, if that response is adequate, that, then, they, then they will not be symptomatic. They won't have a cough anymore, and they won't be contagious because the bacteria is walled off. Okay. So this is why you do a two-step test for tuberculosis. And we'll talk about the skin test in a little bit. But this is why if you have a positive skin test, right, what's the next go-to? A chest x-ray. And this is why, right? Because these, uh, these uh, tubercles, right, they'll calcify. So they're, 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 they get dense, and you can see them on x-ray. I'm going to actually pull up an x-ray. There's one. That's not going to look very good. Yeah, it's not the best image, but um, most lung tissue here should be, uh, of course, pretty black, right? Not a lot of density. What you're seeing here is a big is a calcification with a hollow part in the middle, and that's typical of uh, tubercle. Okay. So remember, those things can uh, cavitate. They can break open. Uh, the cavitation? No, not necessarily. No. Okay. So um, when it's walled off like that, the bacteria are live but dormant, and they can remain that way for years at a time. So for a long, long time. As I mentioned, they uh, there is a you know. Um, not all cases, but, but some cases that it can become reactivated when that person now has a compromised immune system and their body can no longer keep that bacteria walled off. Okay, at that point, it's symptomatic again. There'll be a cough, there'll be further spread of the bacteria, further tissue damage, necrosis, and it will be uh, contagious again. Okay, so um, on slide 63 here, you have kind of the basic scheme of how this stuff, of how this can go. You're exposed to the tuberculosis uh, initially. There is obviously the immune and inflammatory response. Um, if somebody has a solid immune system, they'll form the tubercles and wall it off. Um, if somebody does not, it will spread. And then, the, uh, as you mentioned, even if somebody does have the tubercles formed, sometimes they can become cavitated and reactivate later. 
Okay, so we'll talk about uh, this uh, dissemination now. So if somebody has um, a poor immune response, okay, and their body can't handle this very well, it is possible for it to spread beyond the lungs. I mean, it's a primary lung infection, but it can spread elsewhere, extra pulmonary outside the lungs, also called miliary tuberculosis. Okay, uh, it can be really, really serious. Uh, it can be easily be fatal. Uh, depending on what organs are involved and what you know, how adequate the person's access to treatment is, uh, but all sorts of potential systemic signs, uh, fever, weight loss, you know, real significant impairment of overall function, depending on what part of the body is involved. And now, who's going to get this? Well, people who don't have competent immune systems, and that unfortunately tends to include the very young and the very old. So this can happen in kids. If, if young kids who have underdeveloped immune systems are exposed to TB, it can spread more rapidly than you would normally expect in a healthy adult. That make sense? Okay. <coughs> so uh, let's look at what happens in the tissue. All right. So when the tuberculosis uh, infection is active and it's spreading, it's causing tissue damage and it's causing necrosis. So the tissue, you know, certain regions of the tissue that are affected will die. Um, now, you should have learned in patho 1 that there are a few different kinds of tissue necrosis. So basically, depending on how it happens and what tissue it is, what can happen afterwards. So you may have learned about things like you know, liquefactive necrosis, where it kind of just turns into a, a, a liquidy or a goo. Um, you can get coagulative necrosis, where it clumps together. Or you can get this, and this is almost unique to tuberculosis. There are not many things that do this. This is called, does anybody remember? Caseating necrosis. Okay? The word caseating coming from the word for cheese. My apologies to anybody that likes blue cheese because that is what it looks like. Okay? So these pockets of white here, 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 and here are all that caseous necrosis. So it's dead lung tissue. Okay? You don't see that in much else other than tuberculosis. So that's kind of unique there. <clears throat> so let's uh, so let's let's kind of move forward to what do you do about it, right? So you guys have all undergone skin tests, right? Okay, so the skin test has a number of names, the TB skin test, uh, MAN2 test. It's also called the PPD test, purified protein derivative, which is probably the best one to use for our explanation to understand what's happening, right? So you guys learned about immune system and vaccinations and stuff in, uh, in patho 1. So <coughs> how does the PPD test work? <coughs> what protein is, you know, has been purified and derived and is being put under the skin? Remember how the immune system works? <coughs> Sorry? Yeah, exactly. So, but but specific, specifically the antigen. Right? So the, the protein antigen for, that mar uh, marks tuberculosis, right? Remember our immune system, it's constantly patrolling and essentially identifying any antigen that is, uh, that is, we, is assumed to be non-self, that doesn't belong. And the response should be attack, right? That's the basic, basic idea of how the immune system works. So um, that's how a vaccination works, right? You introduce into the body um, uh, an attenuated virus, right? Or, uh, so basically a, a virus that is not active, but you're now introducing its antigen. The immune system recognizes it, learns how to deal with it, how to recognize it quickly. And if you ever become exposed to it in the future, you'll be ready for it and have a quick response and you won't get actually sick. 
Now, what happens during a, a, during a tuberculosis test? So anytime you inject something foreign into the body, you can expect some amount of inflammation, right? An immune response, hopefully. If you don't, then there's something going wrong, okay? Now, a positive TB test, and I won't even go into the numbers of the size because that can vary depending on population, and there's some complications there. But let's assume that you now have a positive test. So, the, so the, the, um, there's been significant enlargement around the site of injection 48 hours later. So it's been measured to say this is a positive test, okay? What does that mean? It could mean a couple of specific things, but broadly, what does that mean as it relates to the immune system? Yeah, it means, you, it means your immune system recognizes the tuberculosis antigen. Is that fair? So what does that mean? What are the possibilities that could have led you to that? You have it. That's what we're looking for, right? Or you had it. Or you've had the vaccine, right? Because there, because there is a vaccine, right? So, um, and so you, you can be immune to it. Okay, so those things are all possible. Uh, usually the question that comes up is, is, so why doesn't everyone get vaccinated? And the answer is twofold. One, because it's not terribly common in our population. And so some people, certain populations around the world do get this, okay? And two is if we all of a sudden started vaccinating everybody for TB, then it would essentially nullify the, uh, the efficacy of the test. So it would, it would diminish our ability to screen for it with a skin test, okay? But anyway. Um, so one of those, one of, basically one of those possibilities are the case. Your immune system recognizes TB, okay? So now what? We go for a chest x-ray. You go for a chest x-ray and you're looking for those calcified tubercles, which would indicate that you either have or had it uh, previously and then you treat accordingly. That makes sense? Okay, good. Now, what does that treatment mean? Right? Well, the treatment, it's a, it's, a, it's a mycobacterium, so it's a bacteria. It's an abnormal one, but it is a bacteria. Uh, so you treat it with antibiotics. Now the tricky part is, um, as it is somewhat challenging to kill, it's usually um, a combination of medications over a long period of time. And it's not uncommon for the course of treatment to be somewhere between six and 12 months. Okay, so that's significant. That's, n that's much above and beyond what you would typically see in an average run-of-the-mill you know, antibiotic course. So that leads us to some other problems, right? So that means that in order to say you, do, you somebody has, uh, you know, they have tuberculosis, it's been identified, and they get the treatment. That means they have to have access to that treatment. They have to have access to the diagnosis. They have to have access to the ongoing access to the medications, and they have to take them, and they have to keep doing this for a year, let's say. Okay, so that runs you into some problems, uh, and and kind of uh, um, speaks to the continued pervasiveness of this in certain parts of the world that have inadequate access to healthcare, uh, et cetera. That makes sense? Okay. Um, now, that also unfortunately speaks to some other populations, and we do tend to see um, increased uh, uh, rates of tuberculosis infection in, for example, populations of uh, homeless people. There's a couple reasons for that. One is living in close quarters, and two is maybe not proper access to healthcare maybe some comorbid uh, um, you know, um, um, psychological stuff going on. So for whatever reason, they can't or won't or don't continue the course of therapy and can't properly manage it. So those are problem populations where you tend to see this. And that's 
kind of goes back to the epidemiology stuff early on. All right. Uh, that being said, one sec. even if uh, you have access to, to this stuff, there are forms of TB that are drug resistant. Uh, and, and you guys have learned about drug resistance before, right? You know, one of, the, one of the common things that leads to drug resistance is not completely uh, eradicating it, right? So not undergoing the entire course, which would make sense that that could reasonably happen in a lot of cases here. So, you know, the, the bacteria that don't die remain, and now you, you can evolve into drug-resistant forms. And there are multi-drug-resistant forms, and there are effectively incurable forms of tuberculosis now that there are significant multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis strains that, that we can't properly manage. Okay? Yes? Um, you were saying it's at con like it's contact um, with bacteria. Yeah. So if someone has a six-month treatment, are they like to be isolated for so long because of contact? No, not not yeah, no, not not for that long. It's um, while in the early stages, once they begin treatment, they don't have to be. Okay. It's a good question, though. Uh, so again, um, it, it, it's uh, it's time-consuming and expensive, and you know resource depleting to, to treat uh, these kinds of patients ongoing, which is very doable, uh, but only if you have the, the system in place and the resources to be able to, to do so, which is why you see such significant disparities in global populations and where you find this stuff. Okay? All right, let's talk about two more infections and then we will take a break. Okay, these ones are short ones. Uh, this one, histoplasmosis, this is our only fungal infection that we'll talk about. So um, this is kind of an interesting one. There's basically two populations you tend to see uh, histoplasmosis in. Um, and the first is, um, it gives it its other name. So histoplasmosis is also called spelunker's disease. Anybody know what spelunking is? Caving, right? So it's also called caver's disease. So basically, the, the link there is that this is a, uh, a fungal infection that you tend to get in dark, damp areas like caves and particular ones that have uh, bat guano. So bat or bird droppings, that's where you tend to see this fungus. So you get in there, the ventilation is poor, you inhale lots of this stuff, and you get a fungal infection of the lungs. Okay? So being a fungal infection, you would of course treat it with antifungals, right? Good. Um, and there's a, did you guys learn about antifungals in another class? Okay, maybe, a little bit. Uh, antifungals are pretty nasty, all right? Um, you don't, think of where most of our fungal infections are, right? Mm -hmm. On the skin, superficial, right? How do you treat those? Topical, okay? Um, there are, of course, infections that you have to treat orally uh, if they're internal, uh, but you have to be basically under constant monitoring, uh, constant medical supervision because there are some significant side effects of, uh, anti of oral antifungal meds, okay? particularly harsh to humans. Anyway, so uh, that's how you would treat this. Um, the other population you tend to see this in is also kind of uh, interesting. Uh, it's an opportunistic infection that you see in AIDS patients. It's actually sometimes used as a marker for somebody who is now cross the line from being someone who's HIV positive to someone who now has AIDS in saying that their immune system is compromised enough to the point where they've acquired this fungal infection that you don't often see in many people. Does that sort of make sense? Okay. So when it does happen, um, uh, it's actually internally 
looks kind of similar to TB. It's different, obviously. It's a different organism, but um, you get uh, uh, necrosis, so tissue death. Uh, although it's not the caseating necrosis, you get granuloma formation, so that pebbly scar tissue that the uh, that the immune system makes in its effort to kill it, uh, and some significant um, uh, systemic effects. So uh, weight loss, uh, f fatigue, fever, night sweats, stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> Any questions on that one? And last one before break. Probably heard of this one too. Anthrax. Um, although you may not have heard of it recently uh, because it's not terribly common, but it did get some press back in the early 2000s, in 2001, shortly after 9-11 uh, actually. So um, the reason it got press and people know about it is because uh, anthrax, which is um, a, a bacteria, okay, it's a bacillus, it's a bacteria, um, in that event in 2001, uh, somebody had been sending envelopes with a white powder in it to government buildings uh, around the states, and in that white powder was anthrax spores. And so if somebody inhales anthrax spores, it can cause a really, really significant lung infection um, and, uh, and a high fatality rate. So we back up a step there. So anthrax <laughs> is most typically not a lung infection, although we're talking about it here clearly. It's actually usually a skin infection. It looks like that. Okay, <laughs> so um, this is again is not terribly common. It does exist, um, but it, it often looks something like this, where you see this darkening, almost blackening, of the uh, of the skin, and it is usually a skin issue. Um, most people that acquire skin anthrax infections are handling livestock, so it, it's there's something about it where it tends to be common in in, in farm animals. So you can acquire it that way, and there is a vaccination for it. But again, it's, it's, it's not terribly common, so it's not something that everybody gets protected against. But if you're working, handling livestock, there, you can get vaccination for it. Now, <clears throat> if this is recognized and treated, prognosis is pretty good. If it's untreated, uh, prognosis starts to get a little dicier. If you inhale the spores, regardless of whether you get treatment, the fatality rate starts to climb near like 80%. So it, it's once it gets into the lungs, it causes a really significant acute respiratory uh, failure. Um, significant uh, um, inflammation goes along with flu-like symptoms um, because the, the spores will release, uh, so the, the spores will become live bacteria. The live bacteria release this vasoactive toxin which can cause, um, can cause uh, shock. Uh, and among, between those couple of things, it can be, you know, can easily be fatal, and the fatality rates speak to that. Okay, it is a bacterial infection, so you do you treat it with Cipro, um, but again, you have to you, ha you have to get the treatment very very early to have any reasonable shot at success. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah, not terribly common, but uh, but you may as well know about it. So let's take a break from now until quarter after. We'll come back and talk about some obstructive disorders. All right. So let's move on. We're past our infections, unless anybody has any specific questions. Okay. So we're moving on to the next, uh, next section, which is obstructive lung disorders. So keep that in mind. There's a bunch of very different kinds of disorders in the next section. So we're going to talk about uh, cystic fibrosis, 
uh, and lung cancer and asthma and aspiration and then eventually COPD. So they're obviously all different, but the similarity is that they are all going to have the potential to cause some kind of obstruction, as in blockage of airflow in and out of the lungs of some kind. So keep that in the back of your mind. Okay? So the first one. I believe we kind of briefly touched on this last week, but let's go into some more detail. Uh, cystic fibrosis. Did you learn anything about this in a genetics unit in previous class? Okay, perfect. So um, hopefully this, this, shouldn't be, uh, this shouldn't be too complicated. Uh, <coughs> CF is obviously a, a heritable disorder. It's an autosomal recessively inherited disorder. So we know where the faulty gene is found. It's on chromosome 7. Uh, you need two copies of it to, to have the phenotype of the disorder. So there can be carriers uh, if, you're, um, uh, if you only have one copy. Now, <coughs> cystic fibrosis, we're going to talk about it in the lung section because um, there are some significant effects on the lungs. All right? uh, and, and ultimately, what causes a lot of the fatalities in cystic fibrosis is the chronic effect on the lungs. But it's not limited by any means to the lungs. So CF is a disorder of exocrine glands. Okay, so what is the difference between an endocrine gland and an exocrine gland? And everybody puts their head down. <laughs> what is the difference between an endocrine gland and an exocrine gland? <laughs> Think of the root word, endo and exo. In and exo yep, in and out of what? <coughs> Perfect, good. Okay, so endocrine means that a gland is secreting something into the bloodstream. So when you talk about your endocrine system, you're secreting hormones into the bloodstream that travel elsewhere in the body and act on receptors somewhere else. Exocrine glands secrete substances from glands that don't go into the bloodstream. They go outside. So I'm going to air quotes outside of the body. Okay, now. Don't get confused on that, okay? So, uh, for example, mucus and sweats and things like that are exocrine secretions. But the, the description there is, so outside the body, air quotes, if you're inside the pathway of the lungs or you're inside the tube of the gut and you're secreting something into that tube, that's technically outside of the body for that description. Does that make sense? They're just not in the blood. So, uh, again, mucus and sweat and... Um, and uh, um, uh, enzymes and all sorts of other things that are secreted by exocrine glands can be affected by CF. Okay? It affects the entire body. So let's start with the lungs first. The, the exocrine secretion of lung tissue is mucus. Okay? We talked a little bit uh, about last week about sputum. Sputum is ultimately you know, phlegm, mucus secretion from the lungs. It's meant to protect us. So it's sticky and it traps foreign debris and bacteria and organisms so we can cough it up and get rid of it. However, in CF, they have a hypersecretion problem. So they oversecrete this very thick, sticky, it's called tenacious, so sticky mucus, which means a couple of things. One, it causes obstruction. Shocking, I know. We're in the obstruction section. Okay? So the thick, sticky mucus blocks airways. So that impairs airflow in and out. And that also can lead to some collapsing of, of airways. And we'll talk about that in respect to something called bronchiectasis, probably at the end of today. The other thing that the, pro the other problem that arises is because mucus is meant to trap foreign debris, bacteria, organisms, people with CF have recurrent infections. And so the, the chronic and recurrent blockages and the recurrent infections have this cumulative inflammatory damaging effect on the lungs that ends up 
you know, shortening the lifespan of the FCF patients significantly. Okay? So, <laughs> can you cure cystic fibrosis? No. No, you cannot, right? Not yet, not until, you know, we refine technology like CRISPR, we can cut that gene out and replace it. But for the time being, uh, it's basically supportive care and managing signs and symptoms as they pop up. So, um, I'm going to skip ahead a couple of slides. Actually, it doesn't really matter. I'll, I'm sorry. I'll stay back. Um, typically, patients with CF, as it relates to the lung aspects of this, have to manage that on an ongoing basis. So you have to get rid of this thick, sticky mucus, which means uh, usually uh, medications will help that to, to thin the mucus so they can cough it up. And they'll also usually need some kind of percussion. So historically, this meant manual percussion, as in they would be um, uh, basically prone on a table and somebody would be clapping or cupping or striking the rib cage to loosen up the mucus so they can cough it out. And that has to be done over and over and over because it's a, it's a built-in genetic disorder, which means you just keep making it, okay? Uh, now the newest technology is you can basically wear a vest. So they strap on a vest and it percusses really quickly and loosens up the mucus so they can cough it out. So that's a lot more convenient uh, for a lot of people, so that's, that's helpful. But again, the point is that they're, they're always uh, continuously making this mucus, and they're always at risk of, of recurrent infection. So managing those ongoing infections is going to be uh, a day-to-day -day kind of reality for these patients. <laughs> Let's talk about where else in the body it affects. So anywhere where there are exocrine secretions, which is just about everywhere. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about where the, the the name cystic fibrosis comes from. Did we talk about this last week? Where does it come from? Effects on which organ? Pancreas. Pancreas. Good. Okay. So what are the exocrine secretions of the pancreas? Digestive enzymes, right? So powerful digestive enzymes like lipases to break down fats and proteases to break down proteins and amylases to break down starch and nucleases and all the ases. Okay? So basically, pancreas is supposed to be making these powerful enzymes that are released into the duodenum to break down food so that you can absorb it. So we have a couple problems here. What happens is that you end up getting a blockage of the release of these enzymes from the pancreas. So the enzymes, which don't discriminate, okay? they don't necessarily say, oh, we're going to break down food. They just try to break down whatever it is that they're meant to break down, protein or fat or starch or whatever. So they can end up doing damage to the pancreas itself. And this damage leads to inflammation, which leads to a cyst formation. That's the cystic part. This recurrent chronic damage leads to what our body always does when you get recurrent damage, which is lay down fibrotic scar tissue. So cystic fibrosis refers to the, 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 the visual or the appearance, excuse me, of the pancreas. Now, <coughs> on a related note, if you have a blockage in the pancreas that's preventing the release of these enzymes into the duodenum, what other problem do you have? Yeah, exactly. You're going to have malnutrition because <coughs> now you can't actually digest and subsequently absorb your nutrients from your food. So you have all sorts of effects all over the body that, in, that involve malnutrition. So managing diet is actually part of managing CF for that reason. <coughs> so you may need to add enzymes, or you may need to uh, you know, eat really easily digestible food, some kind of combination of those things. Um, that also means you're going to see effects of malnutrition. Um, what, what's the, the, the most common first sign? If somebody can't digest and absorb foods properly, it usually starts with fats, okay, for whatever reason. So um, 
If somebody is not digesting and absorbing fats, what do they experience? Diarrhea, and what does it look like? It might be, and it's, it's fatty, right? Because if it's not being broken down and absorbed, it's coming out the other end. So they have what's called steatorrhea. That's on a slide coming up right there, S-T-E-A-T-O-R-H-E-A, -E -E so you don't have to write it down. Steatorrhea basically means you have this greasy, fatty stool. And it floats on the water because it's fat, and fat and water don't mix, and it stinks, and it's indicative of malnutrition, right? They're not absorbing fats. They're also not absorbing fat-soluble vitamins, and they're probably not absorbing other stuff, too, okay? What else? Uh, for a similar reason, blockage of the bile ducts. If you're blocking bile ducts, you have further issues with uh, digesting, absorbing fats because the bile is not getting into the gut. Similar kind of uh, reasoning as the last statement. Um, uh, this, okay, this first one. What is uh, meconium? Meconium is normal, right? So in a newborn, what is meconium? Right, first stool, and it looks sticky, black, greenish, right? Kind of nasty stuff. It has to do with uh, mucus formation, uh, mucus secretion in the gut, as well as babies in utero swallowing amniotic fluid, and it turns into this sticky nastiness. And then they poop it out, and then they get the equally nasty baby poop for a while. <laughs> the point is, meconium is normal, but uh, in a patient with CF, um, they have, because it's hypersecretion of the, of the exocrine uh, glands, they have really abundant meconium, and it can actually cause blockage. So they have this problem very early on with there's nothing moving through the GI tract because there's meconium plugging it up. So that's a significant problem for a newborn. Uh, it's also going to affect sweat glands, exocrine glands, so they're going to be high in chloride uh, in particular. Uh, it's actually kind of the standard diagnostic test is a sweat test. So if you... Um, if you don't already have definitive genetic testing done um, that shows that, that, uh, that uh, defective gene, you can do a sweat test to, to guide you towards the diagnosis of, of CF. Okay? Uh, and then it affects the respiratory, or sorry, respiratory, obviously, reproductive tract as well. Um, so both in males and females. Again, secretion of sticky mucus that can cause blockages in these tracts, so blockage of the vas deferens in a male or the cervix in a female, either of which could lead to issues with fertility. All right. Yep. So <clears throat> if somebody with CF is pregnant, could it affect their fetus? Like the <clears throat> development of their... Uh, I'm going to assume so, but I'm not terribly familiar with exactly how that what the effects would be. Sorry. Okay. <coughs> so slide 74 here is going to give you kind of a overall summary of, uh, of a number of the possible effects. I'm not going to go over it again. It's all stuff that we just reviewed, just in a different form. Okay. Um, <coughs> again, meconium ileus, early after birth, <coughs> salty sweat, <coughs> particularly high in, uh, in chloride, uh, issues with malabsorption because you're not introducing the digestive enzymes to the pancreas uh, or bile from the, uh, from the bile ducts into the duodenum. Uh, respiratory stuff, okay, overproduction of mucus, so obstruction, uh, cough, always coughing up that mucus, uh, and recurrent respiratory infections. So for, the, for, for those reasons, plus the malnutrition reasons and a couple of other things, it's fairly typical that that uh, CF patients are going to be delayed in their, in their growth milestones because you're not getting proper nourishment, you got inefficiencies in lung function, and all that stuff kind of makes sense. 
All right. Uh, so again, we you can't cure CF. You can only manage it. Uh, so it's going to involve some kind of management of the lungs, uh, that percussion therapy, whether it's manual or, or the mechanical version, uh, monitoring their pulmonary function from time to time, um, managing uh, infections in particular, so making sure they get you know, prophylactic uh, you know, uh, um, so vaccinations for respiratory infections, and then going to be ongoing uh, management of recurrent infections as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's because, the, my understanding is it's because they're so f um, frequently r have recurring infections that they're a risk to each other because they're, they're at much greater risk of trapping any bacteria that, that they get exposed to and, and having a subsequent infection. Then the less risk of us getting the bacteria? That, that, that's my understanding because there's so, such high frequency of actually having that active infection uh, that at a greater risk of spreading it. All right. Consider too, I mean like, so those patients are gonna be coughing somewhat often, right? So uh, someone who's otherwise healthy is not coughing all the time. So they'll be coughing and you have respiratory droplets in the air and I believe there's, there's I think it's seven meters or there's some kind of, there's some distance that CF patients, five feet, sorry, is that what it is? So there's, there's some distance that uh, CF patients are not supposed to go uh, within near each other. Okay, any questions about CF? Okay, we're gonna move on to lung cancer. Um, so lung cancer is actually a pretty big topic. It's one, of the, it's one of the biggest killers as far as cancer goes. We're gonna keep it fairly broad. Remember that we're in the obstruction section, so understanding the basic idea that an, uh, an expanding mass can impair airflow through lungs, uh, whether it's actually inside an airway itself or whether it's outside an airway pushing in on an airway, compressing it. Either way, it's gonna obstruct airflow. But obviously, there's lots and lots of other effects of lung cancer other than just simple obstruction of airflow. So let's talk a bit about it. Off the top, I'm hoping this is not news, but let's emphasize it anyway. 90% plus cases of lung cancer are related to smoking, okay? And it's pretty much as simple as that. Um, there is, certainly, you can get lung cancer from other means. You can get lung cancer having never smoked a day in your life. There are some genetic implications there. Uh, there are some other things like uh, environmental exposure to pollutants and things like that that can cause irritation in lung cancer. But far and away, greatest cause is, is smoking. So the sooner we get rid of that, the better. Um, as with any uh, cancer of any kind, uh, you classify the tumor based on the cell of origin. So what kind of cell it came from. That's gonna partially dictate what the behavior of that tumor is. So there can be bronchogenic carcinoma that came from the epithelial lining of the bronchus, a squamous cell carcinoma, so again, coming from a, a lining cell, or adenocarcinomas. Does anybody know what the prefix adeno means? Yeah. Means gland, okay? So it means a, a, a carcinoma means, uh, uh, means malignant tumor, of, uh, of a, in that case, a glandular tissue, okay? So, and they all look very much different. Here's an example uh, of, of a lung tumor. It's obviously all this stuff in white. It's fairly significant. Um, you know, this should give you a visual, of course, of how it can cause blockage. It's a big space-occupying lesion. It's got mass, it's got volume, and it's, it's gonna be blocking airflow uh, through those regions of the lungs. Okay, 
Now, of course, also our, uh, already knowing that smoking is the biggest cause of this, it probably shouldn't be a big surprise to you that if you look up in the other regions of the lungs, you see indications of that, right? All this black stuff, right? Those, that's all indication of uh, you know, from tar accumulation from someone who's been a long-term smoker. Okay. Uh, side note, uh, your lungs can heal. So to varying degrees, so if you are a smoker and you quit, they will it'll take time, but they can eventually recover, largely. The sooner the better. Um, so what other effects can, uh, can the tumor itself have? Obviously the physical effect of obstructing airflow. Uh, in the interim, if it is obstructing airflow, that would reasonably cause uh, shortness of breath and potential alteration of the breath sounds. You might hear it with a stethoscope, you might hear wheezing. If there's edema or blood, you might hear rails or crackles because it's, it's accumulating as a fluid. Uh, but don't, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't rely on that as a finding because ultimately that all depends on uh, location. So you can have tumors all over different spots. It can be central, it can be peripheral, it can be high, it can be low. It really does depend on exactly uh, where it is that's going to dictate the eventual, some of the signs and symptoms. Um, around any tumor, there's going to be uh, tissue, local tissue damage and inflammation and probably bleeding. So again, locally, there may be some fluid accumulation, which might lead to a cough or hemoptysis. What does that mean? We learned that last week. It is bloody, frothy sputum. Okay. Uh, and anytime there's fluid accumulation, that's a great place for bacteria to grow, so they might be more prone to infections. Okay? If fluid uh, accumulates and spreads from the lung tissue to whatever its next door neighbor is, which happens to be the pleural cavity, you can get pleural effusion. Okay? We'll talk about pleural effusion and hemothorax and pneumothorax in a little more detail next week, uh, but that all involves the pleura. So effusion means there you've accumulated watery fluid in the pleural cavity. Uh, hemothorax and pneumothorax both also mean you've accumulated something in the pleural cavity. Uh, in hemothorax, it is, of course, blood. And in pneumothorax, it means air. So there's been damage to the pleural membrane. Air is allowed to escape into the pleural cavity and, and causes an expansion of that, of that cavity. Again, we'll talk about that next week. Um, one last little thing, uh, perineoplastic syndrome. So perineoplastic syndrome is not unique to lung cancer. Uh, you can get it with a number of different types of cancer, although there are some cases of lung cancer where it's uh, certain types of lung cancer where a perineoplastic syndrome is more typical. Um, so the definition is on there. Have you guys learned about this before? Okay. So the definition is you have a tumor, it's growing, it's doing whatever it's doing, and it's now secreting hormones. Okay? And the hormones don't have to be related to whatever the tissue of origin is. So um, the best example is a, a, a relatively more common example, if you have perineoplastic syndrome, is a lung tumor that secretes parathyroid hormone. So where is parathyroid hormone normally secreted from? Not a trick question, right? Parathyroid glands. Okay. So is lung tissue supposed to secrete parathyroid hormone? Of course not. What does it do? In, uh, it's the opposite of calcitonin, so you're on the right track, though. It increases blood calcium. So that means that it can actually, uh, if it's significant enough, it can demineralize bone. It can suck calcium out of bone. So if you took this person's blood, they, uh, they, would, they would have a high calcium level. 
Again, that's, that's not the majority of lung tumors. It's just an example. Now, um, the, the explanation for this is basically this. Every cell in your body, other than uh, sperm and egg cells, okay, have all of your DNA. Okay? So every single cell in your body has the exact same DNA. But all the cells in your body look different, right? Right? Okay? Neurons look different than muscle cells, than the liver cells, than lung cells, than whatever. They're all unique. Okay? Because you've taken the DNA and you've turned certain genes on and certain genes off. So even though every single cell has all of the instructions, only some are used in different ways in various cells. So that's why they look different and mature differently. But in theory, they all have that same instruction manual. So if you have a tumor, which by definition means there's mutation to the DNA, to the DNA, if there's a mutation to that segment of the DNA that's responsible for making a hormone, then all of a sudden that tumor that is somewhere totally different in the body within where you expect that hormone to come from can now secrete that hormone. Does that make sense? Okay. Good enough. <laughs> Other than that, uh, your usual systemic signs of cancer. Uh, you guys learned about cancer in Patho 1, right? So what am I talking about? Or you can cheat and go to the next slide. All right? Or two slides in. What are the signs of systemic signs of uh, advancing cancer, especially as it's metastatic? Weight loss. Yep. Unex unexplained weight loss, low-grade fever, anemia, pallor, um, anorexia, um, uh, night sweats, fatigue, all that kind of stuff, right? That all ringing a bell? Okay. <clears throat> so um, those, of course, can happen, uh, especially as it, as it, uh, as it progresses. Um, more relating back to specific signs uh, uh, relating to the lung tissue, uh, a persistent productive cough, okay? Uh, hemoptysis, so bleeding. Um, pain in the pleura, especially if it's at the outer edges. So pain when you breathe. Um, it could be chest pain, but don't, and don't necessarily assume that there will always be chest pain involved. Uh, there can be hoarseness of the voice, edema in the face or arm, headache, difficulty swallowing, lung collapse. All that stuff depends on where the tumor is. So um, you guys familiar with the anatomy of the lungs? The apex, right? The apex of the lung is really up in here, just south of the collarbone. Okay. Uh, if you have a lung tumor developing up in the apex, you're more likely to get some of these guys here, the horses of the voice or the edema or difficulty swallowing because there are relevant nerves that come in close to that neighborhood. Okay? But you're not going to get those same signs if you have a tumor down in the base of the lung. So it does depend on location. Okay? Now, can you see tumors on, a, on an x-ray? Yes. Yeah. All right, so tumor occupies space and has density, and so you're going to see this on x-ray. If you look for it, it's going to look like a dense region of lung tissue where it shouldn't be because lung tissue is not very dense. That's not going to give you a terribly great information. It's just going to point you in the right direction. You would have to confirm that with, uh, with a CT or an MRI and then get a definitive diagnosis with a biopsy because every tumor is going to be different depending on the cell of origin. Okay. Uh, so, um, you also might be able to, to see uh, some of this stuff on bronchoscopy. So you take a camera down. Um, if it's if it's impeding on the actual pathway of the of the um, of the airflow, you might be able to see it and or take a, a tissue sample of it that way. 
Um, otherwise, biopsy, I mean, a biopsy either way has to be done in order to get a definitive diagnosis. Um, does anybody know what a medi mediastinoscopy is? It's a scope, right? Scopy of the mediastinum. Where's the mediastinum? All right, center chest. Okay, the relevance is uh, is that um, there are uh, collections of lymph nodes in the mediastinum, where if you have metastatic lung cancer and it spreads, uh, the likely place it will spread to, one of the first places, is the lymph nodes in the mediastinum. So you basically make an incision above the sternum, go in behind, and uh, you can sample the lymph nodes that way. Uh, treatment is probably as you would expect, uh, some combination of uh, chemo, radiation, or surgical removal, depending, of course, on the extent of the case and the prognosis. All right, one of the, I think, one of, if not the single uh, highest cause of, uh, of, of cancer death, lung cancer. Okay, any questions? All right. Next up is aspiration. So um, fairly straightforward means that something other than air has gotten down into the airways. Okay, so the effects of that are going to depend on what it is and where it goes. Uh, it could be a solid, right? It could be like a food. It could be, I don't know, like a, a piece of a toy that a little kid you know, uh, inhales. Uh, it could be fluids like water or a drink. Uh, or you know somebody is swimming and aspirates. It could be vomits, right? Emesis or anything else foreign that is not supposed, that is not air, gets into the lungs or into the air spaces at least. Uh, so what did I say last week? What's the more common primary bronchus to enter? Right. Right, because it's a little more vertical, a little more, a little wider. And certainly doesn't mean you can't aspirate into the left. Of course you can, but a little more likely to go into the right. Um, more common in young kids. Uh, also in older adults, especially as they lose you know, some awareness of, uh, of what they're doing and not paying attention. Uh, also increased uh, incidence when you're eating in a position that's not vertical. Okay, so you're lying down, eating or drinking, much more likely to, uh, to aspirate that way. The effect is going to, of course, depend on what it is and where it goes. So you could have uh, a liquid uh, that you aspirate whether it's a drink or vomit or something, and it, it kind of works its way down following gravity and spreads out into the, into the lung tissue, um, that's foreign, whatever it is. It's a foreign irritant, so it's going to cause an inflammatory reaction. Uh, so there's going to be subsequent uh, pulmonary edema of some kind. Uh, also, depending on what it is that you aspirate, there's a reasonable likelihood that there's bacteria going in with it. So you're at uh, increased likelihood of, uh, of pneumonia subsequently afterwards. Okay, if it's if it's vomit, again, what else is in vomit? <coughs> Acid. So that's caustic, and it's going to potentially cause tissue damage as it's on its way down. If it's a solid, of course, we're talking more about things like choking, and we'll discuss that briefly in a second. Uh, so it really does depend on what it is and where it gets stuck. Go ahead. For in young children, isn't there um, something where if they swallow lots of water while they're, while they're swimming? Uh, it's I, I'm not super familiar with uh, with that particular, but as a common thing, but you could see that. You got me twice today. I don't know what it's called, but I've heard of it. Okay. Dry drowning. Dry drowning. It's secondary drowning. 
Secondary drowning? Secondary drowning. Okay. Fair enough. Can see that. Uh, all right. So um, the effects, again, are going to depend on, on where it is and what it is. Uh, it could be anything from choking to uh, minor irritation, some edema, or to an uh, acute respiratory distress or, or, or respiratory failure, depending on how much of it and where it goes. Okay? As I mentioned, uh, significantly increased uh, risk of uh, infection afterwards, both because you've now got an inflammatory reaction and also you've, because you very well may have introduced uh, foreign microorganisms into the lung tissue. Uh, signs and symptoms. Again, going to depend on what it is and where it goes, but it could be anything from um, choking, uh, and if that's a partial blockage, it's going to be coughing and wheezing. Um, it could be uh, complete uh, loss of, of voice or, or breath sounds or air sounds. Uh, it could be a partial blockage. We saw last week, uh, we learned about strider. So that implies it's a partial blockage of the upper airways. We learned about it in croup, right? So same thing could happen with a, if you have a partial blockage with a solid in the upper airway. Um, body's response right away to this stuff, if you have respiratory distress, is going to be, again, increased respiratory rate, increased heart rate. So those things you're going to see. Um, you're going to see signs of distress uh, for the individual, depending on, again, the extent of their, of their uh, shortness of breath. Uh, and if it's significant enough, it can, of course, lead to either respiratory or cardiac arrest uh, if it's prolonged. Which leads us to first aid stuff. Uh, it used to be called the Heimlich, right? It is now called abdominal thrusts. Uh, when do you initiate abdominal thrusts? Uh, more specifically. When there is no, there is no airflow at all. They can't ask. Unless they're unconscious, yeah. yeah. They can nod. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are supposed to you are supposed to obtain consent for sure, but it, otherwise you can just wait for them to go unconscious and then yeah, and then that. go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, uh, the point is, in order to initiate uh, abdominal thrusts, the person has to have no airflow at all. So if the person it's a partial obstruction and there's like wheezing, even if they're really significantly short of breath, they're having you know, a serious difficulty. If there is airflow, you don't initiate abdominal blows or abdominal thrusts, excuse me, uh, yet until it becomes a complete blockage, then you do so. Okay? All right. Uh, let's take a little, I'm just going to pause this for a sec. <coughs> okay, so continuing on with uh, obstructive disorders. Quick one on obstructive sleep apnea. You've probably heard of this one before. It's fairly straightforward-ish. It basically means that while you're asleep, your airway collapses to the point where you stop breathing. Okay, so the collapse is the obstruction part. Uh, the apnea means cessation of breathing. So how this usually kind of progresses is uh, the person may not even necessarily know it at first. It may be going on for a long time before they realize that they have something wrong. It's most often the partner, the other person sleeping in the bed, that notices this first. Uh, and it's typical that the, these kinds of uh, people that are predisposed to sleep apnea have a history of snoring. Uh, not does not mean that if you snore you have sleep apnea or necessarily will get it, but they typically do. And what happens is they'll notice that their partner will basically stop breathing for stretches of time at night. And then having a regular uh, re breathing rate, will they'll kind of make up for it. 
and then they'll stop breathing again, and it kind of goes on and on and on. Um, often, the person who's actually experiencing sleep apnea, what they feel is a profound sense of fatigue. So they go about their day and they are exhausted all the time and have no idea why. Even if they try to you know, get lots of sleep, they go to bed early, they wake up late, whatever the case is, they're fatigued all the time. And the reason is they're not getting quality sleep. They're not getting sufficient sleep. And so they are tired. Yes? It depends, yes, to some degree. So we'll, we'll talk about it. So the, the, it is, it's more frequent in men than women. I'm not 100% sure why, um, but there are some other factors that are known to be major contributors to it. So one is advancing age. And basically, as you get older, the, more likely, uh, the, the greater likelihood you have of developing sleep apnea. The explanation there is basically weakening of musculature in and around the pharynx and more likely to have it collapse when you sleep. The other is a modifiable risk factor, and that's one of the biggest ones, that is obesity. So uh, if you're bigger, if you have a, a greater BMI, there's more fatty infiltration of the tissue around the airway, and it's uh, easier for it to collapse while you're asleep. So that is modifiable, um, and if you are obese and you develop sleep apnea and you lose the weight, you can modify or diminish your sleep apnea experience, okay? so. That being said, the definitive diagnosis of this, if it's suspected, is in a sleep lab. So you basically go into the clinic overnight, you get hooked up to, uh, to equipment, they monitor your breathing, they monitor your heart rate and a bunch of other things, they watch you sleep and they see if it happens and how many times you stop breathing over the course of the night and then you get a diagnosis of sleep apnea and then you usually treat it in one of two ways. One is an oral appliance, so basically means they have a custom um, mouthpiece that goes in and keeps, helps keep the airway open. And the other is a CPAP machine. So that's the mask that fits over your mouth uh, and, and nose, and it stands for continue, continuous positive airway pressure. So basically it's an air pump that makes air flow inward so it keeps the airway open so that you can sleep at night. That's it. Okay, it's usually quite manageable. It's not the most... Apparently not the most comfortable thing in the world, which you can understand, but um, it's more comfortable than not breathing. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Can you have... Uh, yeah, you know, one sec. Yeah, go ahead. Can you have sleep apnea also from yeah, so there are other forms of sleep apnea. There's central sleep apnea that's a brainstem issue. It can be secondary to other things, but we're mostly focusing on the basic form. Yeah. You might wake up no, no, recognizing that you're not breathing, it, uh, but it's, it's, hard to, it's, it's often hard to, to recognize on your own. So do people go a while without even knowing they have sleep? All the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then, you, and then you, uh, you move in with somebody, and they're like, what the hell is going on with you at night? <laughs> right. Anyway, okay. So let's move on to asthma, okay? So our next obstructive disorder. <laughs> so, there are two types of asthma, okay? I'm going to jump to slide 89, okay? Extrinsic asthma, which is your kind of classic asthma, which is mostly what we're going to be describing, and then intrinsic asthma. So let's suss out the basic difference. Extrinsic asthma is a type 1 hypersensitivity response. Who remembers what that means from patho 1? That means it's an allergic response. 
Okay? So, effectively, extrinsic asthma or classic type asthma is an allergic reaction. It's, uh, so you're exposed to an allergen uh, in the airways and you have an allergic response, which involves a few things ultimately obstructing the airway and, and impairing airflow. So that's the major problem here. So we'll come back to that and it's linked to allergies. The intrinsic type uh, is another form of asthma, more typically kind of um, adult onset. So it comes on from somebody who doesn't have a childhood history of asthma, which is the more, more typically the extrinsic type. Uh, and asthma episodes can be triggered uh, that are non-allergic types of asthma uh, due to exposure to certain other things. It can be during an infection. It can be in response to, be, to acute stress, changes in, in ambient temperature, so um, heat or cold, uh, inhalation of uh, a non-allergen irritant, uh, or during acute exercise. So all those things can possibly trigger an event or several events of, of acute asthma, but those are not by definition an allergic event. Those are called intrinsic asthma. Yeah? If you're sleeping and you wake up and like, Uh, it depends. So it could be either or. It really depends on the individual. So if it's a person who has a history of, uh, of asthma th throughout the day as well or a history of other allergies, it's more likely to be that type. If they have none of that, then it could be the other type. But something that if it's only during that time, they may want to get investigated because it may not be asthma. Okay? Anyway, so let's. So most of our discussion going on is, is talk uh, from here on is talking about the extrinsic type. Okay, so this is an allergic response. So there's inflammation. So what happens when the airway is exposed to the allergen? It causes the allergic response. There's basically three separate things that all happen together that collectively obstruct the airway. So let's jump forward to slide 93. It'll give you a visual of what's happening here. Okay, three things. One is edema. So as you would expect, right, there's a mucous membrane that lines the airway. Now asthma, as we should, I should mention, uh, is particularly affecting the small airways. So the bronchioles, small bronchi and bronchioles deep down in the lungs, just about, op uh, just about to open up into the alveoli. Okay, so small airways. They are lined in a mucous membrane. There is an allergic response, which means an inflammatory reaction, which means edema. So there's edema formation in and around the mucous membrane, which means it swells. So if a mucous membrane is lining an airway swells, it bulges inward. So you're narrowing the, the, uh, the lumen uh, available for air to pass through. That makes sense? Yes? Okay. Number two is you also get um, excessive mucus formation. So during that allergic response, the, the, uh, the mucus glands start kicking out mucus. That, which are also going to, to start uh, impairing airflow because they're occupying space in that now diminished airway. And third uh, is bronchospasm. So sometimes people confuse this with vasospasm, they do it to do with the blood vessels, don't. Bronchospasm is uh, involuntary muscle contraction of the smooth muscle lining the airways. Okay, remember that bronchioles can, can dilate and, con and constrict. So you have involuntary constriction, Swelling and mucus formation, collectively all three happening together, are narrowing the airways and significantly impairing that person's ability to get air in and out. Okay, so person that is, is, is experiencing an asthma attack, they're going to be short of breath, right? significantly short of breath. They'll have a cough. Uh, they'll have this tightening feeling in their test, 
in their test. In their chest, they'll probably be uh, anxious, right, because they can't breathe. Um, you'll, you might hear a wheezing noise because now you have narrowed airways, higher pitched air coming through causing a wheezing sound. They're going to have difficulty breathing, of course. Be, their body's going to increase the respiratory rate. They're going to have tachycardia, and the body automatically responds by jacking up respiratory rate and heart rate to compensate for that respiratory inefficiency. And they will become hypoxic. So a severe uh, uh, asthma attack can uh, result in cyanosis. Okay, what's that? Right, the blue color of the lips and mucous membranes due to that acute hypoxia. Okay. On your notes here, you can cross off the pulsus paradoxus. That does occur, but let's not worry about it. It's more complication than we need. Okay. Now, what can happen uh, subsequent to that? Well, it depends on uh, how, how long it goes and how significant it is, but there is a possibility of either or uh, respiratory acidosis or alkalosis. So kind of follow the trend of thought here. Um, remember that if you can't exhale, Right? If you're trapping air in, so the airways are narrow, you can't get rid of carbon dioxide, that will remain in the blood, that will drive your pH up or down? Down. So that could reasonably cause a respiratory acidosis. On the flip side, the hyperventilation that's associated with, uh, with asthma and also associated with the recovery in the immediate aftermath of an asthma attack, they're hyperventilating. That hyperventilation might actually blow off excessive amounts of carbon dioxide and push that person into a mild respiratory alkalosis. So depending on what part you're referring to, either or are possible. Okay. Now, either way, if that person is hypoventilating, they're getting a significant um, impairment of airflow in, uh, they're going to be in hypoxemia, so they're going to be low blood oxygen and uh, hypercapnia and subsequent respiratory acidosis. If it's significant enough and it's not fixed in short order, it of course can, can lead to uh, you know, more significant problems in, including respiratory failure or even death. Okay. Now, how do we manage, oh sorry, before we move on, um, to that end, if you have an asthma attack that is persistent uh, and is not responding to the normal course of treatment, which is a bronchodilator, which we'll talk about just next, uh, it doesn't respond uh, even with repeated administration of your, of your rescue inhaler. That's called status asthmaticus. That is obviously a medical emergency because it can definitely be fatal. So let's talk about kind of general measures, how you, how you manage this, how you treat it. Okay, so I said the extrinsic form of asthma is an allergic reaction, which means the likelihood is the person has a history of it, uh, and they will often have a history of other uh, allergic or allergies as well, okay? So not necessarily respiratory stuff, it could be food stuff, it could be skin stuff, it could be some other, some other types of allergies. It just, they, tend to, they tend to occur that way in, in kind of clusters. So that means that, um, in theory, uh, it sounds, of course, it sounds easier than it is in reality, but if you avoid your allergens, you can minimize your uh, asthma attacks. Of course, in, pract in practical terms, it's not easy, but it does stand. So um, before that, you need to know what your allergens are. And so getting allergy tested, so things like skin tests, for example, would be a good place to start so you at least know what it is you're allergic to. Anybody here ever had a skin test for allergies? Lots of fun? Yeah, no. So if anybody's not familiar with it, 
basically it's a scratch test so basically you, you have a, a grid laid out on a big patch of skin on your arm or on your back and basically you, uh, you get scratched with a, um, a bunch of pokey things that all have a small amount of a whole bunch of common allergens so you're introducing a number of allergens you know what they are you know where they are on the grid you wait the predetermined amount of time which is five or ten minutes which feels like a lot longer and you see what the inflammatory response is and which ones are really really torturously itchy Okay, and then that way you, you are able to determine what it is that you are allergic to, or at least narrow it down. Okay, so um, again, these patients having a history of, of other allergies is probably a good, a reasonable place to, uh, to start. In general, somebody that has a history of asthma is going to benefit from regular exercise. Uh, so that's going to improve their capacity to, to manage acute events. So that's important. And then there's the, you know, the, the medication stuff. So. Um, most typically, uh, somebody who has a history of asthma, especially if it's, if, it's, if it's bad, is going to carry with them a rescue inhaler to use during an acute event. So <clears throat> considering the issue with asthma is constriction of the airways, okay, the rescue inhaler is usually something like Ventolin, which is a bronchodilator. So it's something you inhale, uh, and it opens up the airways for the time being, which makes a lot of sense. right? There are some other things that can be done as well, uh, maybe administering stuff like glucocorticoids. Why would you do that? Anti-inflammatory effects, perfect. Um, and then there are also some, some prophylactic measures. So um, honestly, don't even bother with chromalin. It's not really used very much anymore. But this one here is, okay? Leukotriene receptor antagonists. Uh, that's medications like Singular, if you've heard of that. Uh, so Singular is not a rescue medication. You don't take it with an acute asthma attack. It has no effect on an acute asthma attack. In fact, it's often an oral medication that you take daily. And what a leukotriene receptor antagonist does is essentially blunts the inflammatory response. So that when you do have an acute event, uh, an allergic response, it's not as significant. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, so a lot of people will take both. Are there any questions? All right, let's move on. This is a big one, okay, COPD. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is actually a, a group of two disorders, okay? We're gonna uh, we typically teach them as separate entities. So you have emphysema and chronic bronchitis. They kind of teach them as siloed individual disorders. But the reality is that in most cases, uh, individuals, patients are going to have elements of both. Do we know why? Sort of, but the cause is also the same. And we want to take a wild stab at what causes most cases of COPD? Smoking. Of course it does, right? Smoking. So there's a crossover there, but we're going to teach it like they're individual things. But remember in the back of your mind that clinical reality is that you're going to see elements of both. Okay, so the issue with COPD is they're chronic and progressive. So they, they don't tend to get better. You can't cure COPD. It tends to get worse and worse and worse. What you can do is try to slow it down or stall it, uh, but it, the progress, that's, the damage that's been done does not typically get better. It only gets worse. It can be really seriously debilitating in, in later stages to the point where the person is unable to do much of anything. To the point of, of course, uh, what it ultimately can cause is respiratory failure and death, uh, and it can also cause something called core pulmonality. Are you familiar with what core pulmonality is? Yeah. 
that root, the, the, the root word core, it means heart. So it literally translates to heart lung. This is congestive heart failure as a result of a lung disorder. Does anybody, want, does anybody know which, you know, the two types of congestive heart failure, right and left sided? Which one of these is that? Right sided. Right sided. Okay? So you would have learned in pre, uh, previous uh, class that left sided CHF can lead to congestion of the lungs, right? But a primary lung problem, for a number of reasons, can lead to an increase in the amount of work that needs to be done by the right side of the heart to pump blood into the lungs. And so you end up with right-sided congestive heart failure, which gives you what kind of peripheral signs? Edema where? Body, right? Jugular, abdomen, extremities. Good. Okay. <coughs> so um, we talked about this a little bit last week, and let's, let's review that now. <coughs> the, the, we'll talk about emphysema first. So the major issue with emphysema is you have the destruction of the alveolar walls, septa, so the walls between alveoli. So I'll draw two alveoli there, and we were talking last week how the walls in between them, that means that's lung tissue, right? That's, that's stuff. So there's elastin in there, there are cells in there, there are blood vessels in there. Okay, and this all matters. This kind of relates to the problems that you see with emphysema. <clears throat> but what happens, the, the basic, basic thing that happens is there is inflammatory damage and you get breakdown of these walls, the septa. Okay, so what you create are, instead of adjacent smaller air spaces, you create larger air spaces. And the terms that might come up in the notes are blebs and bulla of interchangeable, they basically mean <coughs> larger air spaces due to the breakdown of the walls in between adjacent spaces. Okay? <coughs> so, uh, it's, um, it, it, so both types of, of uh, COPD have something to do with inflammatory damage recurrently. But specifically related to emphysema, um, let's talk about what causes it. So, 90% of cases easily plus are caused by smoking, okay? Um, some cases are caused by environmental exposure, so exposure to maybe industrial irritants, or in certain uh, developing countries with very poor air quality, uh, constant inhalation of, uh, of uh, environmental irritants can do these types of damage as well. Um, but with emphysema in particular, there is also a genetic component to it. So you can get emphysema even if you've never smoked a day in your life. Um, it's a minority of cases, but it does occur. Don't write this down. It's not going to be testable. But if you ever hear it come up, uh, it's what's called an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And that basically means that you have this substance that's used in various parts of your body, including lungs, that diminishes inflammatory damage to tissue. And if you're missing that thing, then you accumulate damage and you start to get stuff like this happening. So it can occur even without smoking, but by far the majority of the cases are due to smoking. It can also occur with recurrent infection. So consider what happens if you have <coughs> infection after infection after infection. There's inflammation, there's tissue damage, and there can be tissue destruction like this. So it can occur that way as well. Now, what happens? So we started to touch on this last week and let's review. You're breaking down <coughs> these septa the walls, you're essentially losing what is contained in those walls. So off the bat, we're talking surface area, 
Okay, so if you're losing alveolar walls, you're decreasing the surface area. Even though you're now creating larger air spaces, they're, they're less efficient. So right away, you're losing gas exchange efficiency, both oxygen in and carbon dioxide out, right? So ultimately, you're heading towards hypoxia and hypercapnia. That makes sense? Okay. <clears throat> you're also losing um, uh, um, cross-sectional area of capillaries. So embedded in those walls, you have lots of capillaries. And if you break the walls down, you're breaking capillaries down, which means you now have less blood vessels available to send blood through. And this part is largely what's related to the right-sided congestive heart failure bit. So if you're losing a bunch of blood vessels, but the right side of the heart still has to send the same amount of blood into the lungs, it has to do so at a higher pressure, because now you have congestion, increased pressure, right? Pulmonary hypertension, increased pressure in the blood vessels of the vessels that remain. So if you have this over time and it never gets better, which it won't, it just gets worse, the right side of the heart has to work harder and harder and harder, and you end up with right-sided congestive heart failure. Okay? So, again, back to your, you know, you would have learned this in patho 1, but that has huge effects all across the body. It has the, the, um, the edema effects that we just mentioned with the, in the abdomen and the, in the extremities. Uh, it also has forward effects. So you have decreased uh, blood delivery to the body. So now you have inefficiencies that go with chronic disease all throughout the body. Inefficient blood delivery to the tissues and all sorts of things start becoming uh, less efficient all through the body. The other one, and this is a big one, <laughs> okay, is the loss of those elastic fibers. So <clears throat> again, embedded in those walls, you have elastin, which makes the lungs want to snap back to their smaller size, which we discussed last week. So if somebody is developing emphysema, they are going to have issues getting worse and worse with breathing in or breathing out. Breathing out. Okay? So you are losing that ability to passively have the lung tissue collapse, snap back to its small size where you want it to be. So that means you have to work. Right? You have to work to exhale. And so this becomes, quite frankly, exhausting. Right? So you have to work to exhale all the time. So this is why we used to call emphysema patients pink puffers. Okay? They're pink in the face from the exertion of exhalation. And the puffer part comes from some of the uh, things that are taught. So you, te you teach an emphysema patient to breathe with pursed lips, because when you do this, it creates resistance. So you, you, it, it essentially allows you to, to create more pressure with the abdominal muscles and, and exhale air. Okay? The other thing that happens, and there's some crossover here with, with this and chronic bronchitis, but that chronic tissue damage is going to lead to fibrosis as you would expect with any chronic recurrent inflammatory damage, right? You develop scar tissue. So that scar tissue is going to narrow airways, and that is further impairing airflow. Okay? Um, some of the physical things that you might notice. Okay? So um, as you have a greater and greater difficulty exhaling, and as you uh, break down more and more of these alveolar septa, you start trapping more air. So we talked last week about um, lung volumes, right? The tidal volume is the air flow in and out passively. Um, the vital capacity is max in and out. And then when you, you know, use your vital capacity and you empty your lungs as hard as you can until you feel that you're completely empty, there's always air left in there. That's the residual volume. 
in someone with emphysema, the residual volume starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because they're trapping air and they can't get it out, which means that eventually what happens is you actually get an anatomical change. So the ribs start widening both laterally and anterior-posterior. And as that happens, the diaphragm starts going from more of a dome shape to more of a flattened shape, and the person gets this characteristic barrel chest appearance. They are permanently wider in the torso because their rib cage is expanded with this uh, increased air travel. So you can see that visually, you can see it on x-ray, it becomes obvious once you start seeing enough COPD patients. All right. I'm, sh I'm certain that some of you have seen this before if you've you know, worked in long-term care. <clears throat> so <coughs> uh, other things that can happen, um, pneumothorax. <coughs> Uh, we briefly said earlier what that word means. It means air in the pleural cavity. Good. So the explanation here is, let's say that you have um, these alveoli are at the very outside edge of the lung, right? They're towards the outer, outer edges of the lung. And out here you have the pleura, right? So you're causing inflammatory damage in here, but you can also create ruptures in that pleural membrane. And so now air is able to escape from inside the lung air spaces out into the pleural cavity. And so you get pneumothorax. Okay? The mechanics of pneumothorax we'll talk about more uh, in next week's lecture. Okay? Now, <clears throat> over time, as we mentioned, patients with emphysema, their real significant problem is, uh, is a difficulty exhaling. So they will become hypercapnic over time. They have chronically elevated blood levels of carbon dioxide, which, as we know, will also lead to chronic respiratory acidosis, drives the pH down. Okay? And this, uh, we, uh, this is one of the Kahoot questions earlier today where we were talking about it. Um, these patients, that they can no longer rely on the, uh, um, the detection of CO2 levels. Uh, to, to regulate respiration, so they revert to the backup plan, which is hypoxic drive. So their brainstem has to measure low blood oxygen, and then it responds, makes you breathe more, and then it kind of cycles back and forth. Okay? They're also going to um, have frequent infections, a couple reasons, right? Inflammation, difficulty clearing the lungs, that's a recipe for more infections. That makes sense? Okay. So uh, again, you don't wake up one day and have full-blown emphysema. It takes time. Uh, it develops kind of insidiously and slowly over time. It starts off with the relative shortness of breath. Uh, they'll de start developing hyperventilation, so they'll breathe more with particularly a long expiratory phase. So they're working to breathe out, as you would expect when you're losing that elasticity and, uh, issue and, and ability to exhale. Okay. As you would probably expect with chronic disease, chronic uh, hypercapnia and acidosis and hypoxia, there's going to be systemic effects. Uh, so you're going to get stuff like anorexia and fatigue and weight loss, um, clubbing of the digits. We talked about that last week, right? What's the cause of clubbing of the digits? We don't, well, so we don't know the physiology of why, but what leads to it? Chronic hypoxia. Exactly. Good. Okay? And then diagnostically, of course, there'll be a bunch of things you can do. Pulmonary function tests, x-rays to, to monitor the, the changes uh, anatomically, uh, etc. Now, 
I said you can't cure COPD, you can try to slow it down. What should the first recommendation for someone with COPD be? That would be a good one, right? Quit smoking. Unfortunately, again, spend enough time in the hospital, you'll see enough people with COPD haul the oxygen tank outside, go for a smoke, humans. Uh, but uh, it's, it's definitely the number one thing to, that needs to be done is, is remove that irritant. Now, if it's not smoking, if it's, a, if it's an industrial or an environmental irritant, you know, then that has to be managed as well, if possible. Unfortunately, a lot of people that end up with that are living in parts of the world that they don't have the means to get themselves out of that, you know, that environment at all. But that's a totally different discussion. Now, uh, these people being, uh, being more prone to infection are going to be, uh, um, it's going to be important to get their vaccinations, especially against respiratory infections. So get the flu shot seasonally and get the immunization that have, uh, exists against uh, certain forms of, uh, of pneumonia. Um, there's going to be other, you know, other, it's not just, I mean, there is respiratory therapy, there's respiratory rehab, there's breathing techniques like the pursed lip thing I was talking about. Uh, that's, all, that's all obviously important. There's other considerations as well, you know, with the, with the chronic disease aspect of this, you can support nutrition properly, try to get proper rest. Um, there's all sorts of other things that can be done in conjunction to try to manage this as best you can. Uh, ultimately, um, there, it's going to be common to end up on antibiotics and oxygen uh, eventually, although the, the, um, if you were to pick one of the two, uh, emphysema and, COP, or, and uh, chronic bronchitis, that's going to need oxygen therapy, it's going to be chronic bronchitis more so, and we'll get to that in shortly. Um, this last part is interesting, uh, lung reduction surgery, which sounds crazy at first, the basic idea is that um, if you take a segment, of the, a section of the lungs that's particularly badly affected by emphysema and remove it, uh, it actually creates space for the healthier tissue to, to work better. So it can be, you know, it's a temporary fix, can help boost their function a little bit. Okay, so again, this is what I've drawn on the board, regular alveolus, um, overinflated <coughs> alveolus, blebs, bulla, enlarged air spaces due to the breakdown of walls. Yep. Well, there's going to be inflammation, so they'll probably have a cough. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, so there's going to be debris, if that's what you're asking. There we yeah, go. yeah. But, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, depending on what the cause is, they probably have a cough anyway. Right. Okay. So again, this is this is showing uh, loss of of the elastic tissue, uh, uh, issues with expiration, and uh, and the beginnings of air trapping and increasing the overall residual volume. The other silo of COPD is chronic bronchitis, okay? So this is one that's more often diagnosed based on a history. So the, the, the um, criteria are you have a chronic cough that lasts three months or longer, twice in a period of two years, twice or more. It means you have a chronic cough that lasts uh, for a long time and you've had it more than once in the, in the, over the course of a couple of years. Again, unsurprisingly, number one with a bullet cause of chronic bronchitis, as with emphysema, is smoking. Um, secondary to that is exposure to other irritants, industrial, environmental, etc. What happens in chronic bronchitis is probably what you would hopefully expect to happen when you inhale an irritant. Okay, so it goes into the lungs, it causes 
uh, irritation right, of that tissue because it's not supposed to be there. And so you have inflammation. So you have inflammation, particularly of the mucosa. So the uh, immediate effect is swelling, edema. And as that continues to happen over and over and over, you get some other effects. Okay? So if you get con constant, continuous, repeated irritation, as occurs in smokers, uh, then you actually get changes to the mucus glands. So they hypertrophy, enlarge, and hyperplasia, uh, multiply in number. Uh, so you get this increased production of mucus, which partially contributes to some of that coughing. Okay? We know smokers cough first thing in the morning, right? After all the mucus is settled overnight, so they wake up and they have to <coughs> cough and cough and cough and get the, the phlegm out. That's this. Okay. Um, that chronic recurrent irritation and infl inflammatory damage over time is going to lead to, again, what you would expect to happen with chronic inflammatory damage. You end up getting scar tissue, so fibrotic thickening of the walls of the airways. And that leads to narrowing of the airways, hence an obstructive disorder, and decrease in the ability to flow air in and out. So these patients... Um, again, assuming that this is happening in the absence of, of emphysema, which doesn't really happen, uh, they're going to be short of breath, fatigued, and have significant hypoxia. Okay? They have the same risk of, of pulmonary hypertension, high blood pressure in the lungs due to the fibrotic change and the impairment of blood vessels, similar to an emphysema, similar risk because of that for the right-sided congestive heart failure, the coropulmonale, but for a different pathophysiological reason. So by definition, they're going to have a, a constant productive cough. Right? They're going to have increased mucus production. They're going to have irritants. They're going to have stuff that they're trying to cough out. Their body's response will be, of course, tachypnea and tachycardia as well. Um, person will feel dyspnic, short of breath. Um, uh, they will have thick, purulent secretions. What does that imply? Infection, exactly. Purulence implies bacterial infection, which makes sense. You're hyperproducing mucus, you're trapping bacteria, you have inflammatory environments. That's perfect for infection. So they're going to have recurrent uh, infections inside the lungs. A cough, obviously. Ronchi, remember what that, what that is? That's that deeper, harsher, mucusy sound from deep inside the lungs, that rattling around that happens. Um, they will develop hypoxia, potentially to the point of cyanosis, and then eventual hypercapnia as well. So whereas emphysema, we said if a pure emphysema patient, we call them a pink puffer. Okay, We call chronic bronchitis patient a blue bloater, and the blue implies the uh, chronic hypoxia and cyanosis. So you're going to get signs of congestive heart failure, signs of chronic disease, including weight loss, and polycythemia. What does that mean? Yep, you're on the right track, right? Many something where? In the blood, right? Many, what's sight? Cells in the blood. So it's an overproduction of red blood cells. Okay? This is the body's response to chronic hypoxia. Remember what's involved? So the, the kidneys will detect low oxygen levels. They'll kick out erythropoietin that goes to the bone marrow, says make more red blood cells. And so you make more red blood cells. And so if you take this person's blood, their hematocrit would be up. 
they would have more red blood cells than they should because they've been dealing with this chronic hypoxia, and this is the body's way of trying to deal with it. All right. Treatment. Shockingly, quitting smoking being at the top of that list. Um, same thing as same with emphysema. You're managing the, uh, the ongoing infections. Um, you're going to be uh, prophylactically vaccinating for further respiratory infections, so the flu, pneumonia, that kind of stuff. Uh, expectorant medication, what do expectorants do? They thin up the mucus so you can cough it out. Perfect. Bronchodilators, open up the airway, right? With the fibrotic uh, changes to the airways and the increased mucus production, this is, remember, an obstructive condition. Okay? So that makes sense. Um, they might need some percussion um, similar-ish to your uh, cystic fibrosis patients, right? To loosen up that mucus so they can cough it up. Um, of the two types of, of, of uh, COPD patients, the emphysema and chronic bronchitis, this chronic bronchitis patients are the ones that are more likely to need the low flow oxygen. Their issue is largely with hypoxia. So this is the nasal cannula dragging around the oxygen tank uh, to, to supplement their oxygen delivery because they have inadequate delivery due to the, uh, um, the fibrosis and the obstruction. That makes sense? All right. And this will be our last topic. It's a quick one. Uh, bronchiectasis, it's not even its own disorder. Uh, bronchiectasis <laughs> is something that can occur uh, with chronic irritation of the lung tissue. And a picture might actually, uh, might actually help. Um, what happens is uh, due to the chronic irritation and often excessive mucus formation, so you often see it in uh, chronic bronchitis, CF, and chronic asthma patients, um, that you get dialation of the mid-sized mid bronchi. So this, if you can see that image, is effectively what happens. Um, there's this chronic irritation, chronic mucus formation, subsequent trapping of bacteria, further irritation, further inflammation, further damage to the airways, uh, and they eventually start to weaken and dilate. Okay, so you get this permanent enlargement of the airways. Now that enlargement is part of the problem, but you also have this issue where you now have, you have mucus trapping. And so the mucus trapping and the infection that occurs means that patients that have that, that dilation of the airways, the bronchiectasis, will very typically have recurrent infection and purulent exudates. So they're going to cough up this really uh, you know, um, copious amounts of nasty sputum. So uh, purulent, foul-smelling, so in bacterial-laden sputum. Okay, so again, that, that bronchiectasis is not its own, it's not its own disorder, it happens with those other chronic disorders. And the last slide I'll leave you with is this one. Uh, it's a very important one, okay? It's a good summary of the COPD. Um, if you look closely, COPD that's uh, summarized on that slide is emphysema and chronic bronchitis, which is by definition COPD. It also includes asthma on there. Uh, so again, that doesn't fall within the typical category of COPD, but it is a chronic disorder that causes obstruction. So there are some similarities. Now, when you're studying these things, um, <laughs> make sure that you look at the comments, the common, uh, the commonalities and the differences. So for example, I'll leave you with this. Um, two of these are going to cause increased mucus production. One is probably not. Uh, two of these are caused by smoking. One is not. Um, all three have different 
local anatomy that's involved. Okay? One is the alveoli, one is the large bronchi with chronic bronchitis, and one are the small bronchi and bronchioles in asthma. Okay? Um, a couple of them can cause, uh, can, can cause uh, heart failure. Those are the kinds of differences that I want you to make sure that you're reviewing when you're studying this stuff. All right? Okay, that's enough for today. Make sure to, to finish your, uh, your online quiz before midnight on Monday, and I will see you next week.